Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us, and so it's recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, everybody? Really exciting stuff today. Tim's got a new audio set up, so mm-hmm. you're going to be hearing him extra crispy today, and our first Ghibli movie. Yeah, this is really exciting. We're going to be talking about Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, and on that topic, I do just want to start by asking you, Tay, how do you feel about bugs? Ooh. You a fan? I'm kind of grossed out by bugs, especially oversized bugs, which really only appear in movie fiction. But, you know, Mm -hmm. for those real life examples of giant bugs, I'm not really a fan. But, you know, they're part of our ecosystem. They got to exist. We got to we have to coexist with them. So I deal with them. How about you? Yeah, They definitely play a role. Like, are you are you the type like do you if you find a spider inside, like, are you like capturing him, letting him go? Oh, yeah. You got to kill him because he's on your turf. No, I I I let him go. Those silverbacks are maybe the only exception I got. I I do battle with the silverfish. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me that they're called that. So I call them silverbacks. Silverbacks make sense to me. Yeah, they're <laughs> definitely like them, like schoolhouse centipedes. Those are the ones where, like, I'm I'm trying to remember. You know, they're just they're another they're another creature. They're okay, but they're the ones where it activates something in my in my lizard brain, yeah. right? And it's like that thing definitely is going to crawl across my face like at night. But uh, for the most part, I'm even like I like if there's a spider, he's out of the way. He's made a little home to catch other pests. I like to leave him be. Yeah, absolutely, um, of course kind of don't bother me i won't bother you they're doing you solid um, at that point (laughs) this is definitely like one of the themes of the movie uh that we're talking about today in uh nausicaa uh there's a lot of bugs there's a lot of very big bugs like house-sized bugs they're isopods called ohms or omu um and i I like their look i i think they're pretty cool they got 14 eyes they've got um sort of telescoping segmented bodies and uh and some uh some little pincers right up the front yeah, I feel like there's some definite Dune inspiration from the worms in Dune, but definitely there's a lot of cool science fiction influences throughout this movie. I think we're going to maybe dive into a little bit today. Yeah, yeah. So to start, I'll just give an overview if anyone hasn't seen this. Uh, so Nausicaa is an animated feature based on the manga of the same name, and it tells the story of Nausicaa, a pacifist and a princess who finds herself and her people caught in the middle of two warring nations that are intent on destroying each other and the hostile natural world. Directed and written by Hayao Miyazaki, Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind stars Sumi Shimamoto and Goro Naya. It premiered March 11, 1984 in Japan and on DVD with an English dub on February 22nd, 2005. Yeah, and just an important side note, this story takes place a thousand years after the collapse of our current society, supposedly, and the world's being pretty much taken over by an all-consuming jungle of toxins. Yeah, yeah, there are you have your discrete nations of humanity that are that are at play and they have their different political beliefs and and they're largely at war with one another, but out in the desert you have this sea of decay which are which are these sort of like pollen clusters of toxins that people can't breathe for more than a few seconds without taking on, you know, uh sickness and uh and and dangerous consequences. Yeah, there's some this leads to some really cool design uh both in terms of the character uh, and costume design and also the creation of this beautiful world uh, which is all kind of to go back to Miyazaki and this is this being his really like really the 
groundbreaking movie that started him off onto this legacy. Yeah, Miyazaki, you've almost certainly heard about before. He's um, he's one of the most prolific creators uh, in the East. People will tell you that it's like the, the Japanese Disney, that kind of thing. For better part of 20 years, they've been creating movies that continue to smash records and become critical darlings, things like that. And Nausicaa is really important because it is the one that allowed him to found his studio, Ghibli. Um, prior to Nausicaa, he had made this movie... Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro, which was a part of the Lupin brand, which was this ongoing character, and it was received very poorly right. um, by Lupin fans, which I'm not a long-term Lupin fan. I think the movie's tons of fun, but it did not do well, I think, critically or in the box office. It definitely didn't make enough money. Um, so that led to him sort of calling it quits on movies for a while, and he started writing the manga for Nausicaa. So he was working with a publisher and producing this long-form manga series, and after he'd done that for a couple of years, they started talking to him about making a movie out of it. He had originally actually started his contract with them by saying, I will write you a manga so long as you promise to never make it into a movie. Obviously, he did not have a great experience on Castle of Cagliostro <laughs> and sort of how that affected his career. But in the end, uh, he, he basically said, yeah, you can make a movie of it, but only if I get to direct. Um, so this was kind of his second chance or his final chance, maybe in the moment. And it did, Nausicaa did so well critically and financially that it gave him the clout to uh, start Studio Ghibli and, uh, and start producing movies, the likes of which you've definitely heard of. Um, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away. Yeah, those are the three kind of top films from the Ghibli filmography but there are so mm -hmm. many more gems hidden throughout this and i'm coming at this as the lesser expert of the two of us here seeing a lot less of these movies than you have tim but every one of these movies has both challenged and uh i don't know given me a new perspective on how you can make movies for not only children but like that are approachable for children yeah i do think it's something it's something really special when you watch your first one of these. If you're lucky enough to be able to do so as a kid, I think it. I think it's this paradigm I shift agree, yeah. where the music has a different tonality, the animation is in a different style and has different frame rates, and the themes at play are, are completely different from if you know if you're sort of grown on on standard Disney options. Yeah, today we're going to definitely mention the dichotomy between Western animation and uh, Eastern Asian animation so that's kind of what we're talking about is an opposition um, and not that they have to exist in opposition of one another entirely but Studio Ghibli kind of exists for those of us who are kind of tired of the Disney formula they exist in a way that I don't know is super refreshing and still energizing every time you go back to these movies versus like the common tropes of a Disney film. Yeah, we would want to be disingenuous and argue that, you know, Ghibli films or Eastern cinema is any sort of commentary or argument on Western animation cinema. It's very much column A and column B. You get a completely different set of priorities and concepts and themes at play. Uh, and it's really refreshing when you switch from one to the other. My, my first sort of exposure to Ghibli movies was just a trailer for what would be his next movie, Castle in the Sky, his first Ghibli movie. Um, which was before something that I watched over and over as a kid, 
but it was the one trailer that I didn't fast forward through because it felt so entirely different. It was almost certainly a, a Disney uh, movie that I was watching because right. Disney gained the gained the Western distribution rights for Ghibli movies after this. I, be- and I that, believe that, that started back in uh, with Spirited Away. Um, yeah, I, 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 it might have been Mononoke. It's That's a it's true. a bit of a a bit of a fraught history, right? Because so. I think one thing that we can delve into right here is just how Nausicaa was dealt with in the West, um, which was, uh, to put it mildly, not well yeah. at all. Um, it's super unfortunate. A, like seeing some of the stuff you, you were sending me this week in leading mm-hmm. up to this podcast, it was pretty embarrassing. Yeah. So in this movie, Nausicaa came out in Japan in 84 and in 85, another company, New World Pictures, gained the rights to redistribute Nausicaa for the West. And they did so by cutting about a half hour out of it and completely mismarketing it. We'll put a a link in the show notes to the trailer for the Western release, which was called the warriors of the wind. Yep. Um, which is, it, it seems like a joke, but apparently again, I I wasn't, I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't there obviously when it, when it came out. But as far as the records show us, they actually did market it like this. We'll we'll put a link to this horrible poster, too, that just has actual non-existent characters on it. And Nausicaa is up in the right-hand corner, sort of out of focus and definitely out of center. Yeah, all like appearing to be male-looking figures as well surrounding her. Yeah, yeah, they definitely like the the trailer is weird because they even they they position some of the antagonists uh, in Nausicaa as central male characters because clearly they didn't have enough male characters to make up like your you, what they wanted to be this ragtag group of warriors in the distant future yeah. who are fighting for a princess to call it's, it um, warriors of the wind yeah it's a it's a real bummer and it almost certainly informed the way that miyazaki would deal with western redistribution of his films in the future most notably like the very popular story was that his producer whose name i don't have in front of me right now um so we'll put a link to an article about it in the notes um when harvey weinstein wanted to make some cuts to princess mononoke the producer sent him a samurai sword in the mail with a note that said no cuts right that's the very popular story and you can see you can see where that kind of um passion for uh, artistic control comes from after your movie got butchered like it did between Nausicaa and Warriors of the Wind. Yeah, it just continues this very damaging impression of Hollywood studios doing this to uh, mm-hmm. honestly, it's mostly the Japanese and Asian releases um, in terms of re- rebooting them and remaking them in an American style or fashion. And yep. it's pretty offensive if you're a fan of some of these like original pieces uh, I know, like, do, are you someone who watches, like, both versions of the Ghibli movies, both the English dub and the original Japanese versions? I try to I try to mix in the English dub when I know I'm going back for a rewatch right, at some yeah. point. But if, it, if it's been far enough between the last time that I watched it, I end up just defaulting to the, to the Japanese subs because I do feel like there are some really fun English voice casts there are. for these movies. There are, absolutely. Right? Like, like um, uh, Patrick Stewart uh, voiced Lord Yupa and... Alison Lohman as a as a callback to our episode hey. four, Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, uh, voice Nausicaa in the two thousand and five dub and re release by Disney. Um, but generally, I do I just opt for subs because um, unless I was watching, say I knew I was going to watch Nausicaa like three times over three days, yeah, I'd, I'd probably put in the 
the uh, the English dub, but uh, for the most part, no. Yeah, for Spirited Away, I've seen both versions a couple times, but this is the only other one that I've actually watched the English dubbed version of, and I watched. I made sure I watched it after watching the original Japanese version, mm-hmm. of course, but just to kind of gain that extra context, see what they might may or may not have adjusted uh, in the language of the film. And mm-hmm. honestly, like I've I've been pretty impressed between this dub and the dub for Spirited Away that there isn't a whole lot taken out of context or altered in any way that would be damaging yeah. to the actual original context. Um, I think it's much nicer to see or to, I guess, hear the original voice actors in Japanese. But at the same time, like you said, these voice casts for the American release are pretty fun. They're usually mm-hmm. loaded up with top-end talent. And it is interesting to kind of get that second sort of different viewing of a of a movie that you're a fan of yeah i i do think it's always an interesting exercise to see how they translate certain concepts and things like that mm-hmm. and what you do change like uh, i like the the way to combine it all together right is you throw up your japanese subs with the english dub track and you can listen and read against it obviously that's i wouldn't say that for the first time if you're we have a few listeners now who've told us that they they like to listen to these episodes before they actually watch the movie so if you're in that boat we definitely recommend check it out with the japanese subs first yeah absolutely um but i I like i like the option of the english dubs um you know if i have kids things like that i definitely bring them up just listening to those i'm not gonna ask them to read for for two hours while they're watching a movie and having all these films on netflix is a a huge benefit because you do have all these glorious subs options right Mm -hmm. there built into the platform yeah yeah, Netflix does make that easy. And, and it should be noted, too, that for a long time, uh, these things were never going to be on Netflix. That's right. I think they were brought over just two or three years ago. And up until that point, Miyazaki would have told you at any given time, these will never stream. And they had a real, for lack of a better comparison, Disney Vault vibe to them. I remember three or four years ago looking for a copy of Porco Rosso on Blu-ray. And you could find one, you know, at, at Sunshine Records or maybe even before HMV um, collapsed. You can find one there for 70 or 80 bucks and it's the only one there and you you really had to hunt them down. And then it was just in the last couple of years where they put out a box set of Blu-rays and added all these things to streaming. Yeah. And if you are looking to buy your own hard copy of any of the Ghibli films, there are really great steelbooks out on limited edition right Mm -hmm. now and they're about 30 bucks Canadian. So honestly, not a bad price for some real collector's items. If you're a fan, Uh, that's the way to go. Yeah. And yeah, and I would say if you're tempted by that box set, I bought it uh, based on an Instagram ad. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it does not run super well. Like there's some nice art books in it. It's nice to have them all. But I find that the actual performance of these Blu-rays is a little suspect. See, that's, so, that's disappointing. It is. Yeah, I think they're making a quick buck off of me when I was scrolling through Instagram. So that, that's on me. But uh, yeah. I have I have a couple specific Blu-rays for my faves. Otherwise, but look look into the steel books is my suggestion. Yeah. I'd say just the other thing we can talk about um, is again in in um, positioning this as the beginning of Miyazaki's sort of proper full full fledged career. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of his tropes and his common themes that start here. Some of which he develops further, and a couple points that he sort of drops away when he starts really getting into um, the the height of his career and and his most creative works later on. 
Yeah, uh, there's a few things that definitely stood out to me, and I, like I said, I haven't seen nearly as many of the Ghibli film, or the Ghibli canon as you have, but, you know, like, the idea, like, the character itself of the shoju-type character um, played by, or encapsulated by the lead character Nausicaa, it was, like, one of the big takeaways. Um, These ideas of environmental degradation... Uh, the common characters of the sidekick and the princess are kind of brought forth again. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cool, really uh, obvious things that I'm pointing out, but did you find any more like nuanced tropes that you've seen in other Miyazaki work? Uh, well, I'd say primarily like this, just it obviously covers his his views on environmentalism, on nonviolence and pacifism. Yeah, pacifism <sighs> is actually a really big one that I didn't even think of, mm-hmm. but this movie yep. kind of wears that on its sleeve. Yeah, absolutely. And and then definitely just um, right from the beginning, like Castle of Cagliostro, um, you know, obviously starred Lupin um, and had a more conventional sort of um, arrangement of gender roles in it with the princess that he's trying to save. Right. But right after that, when he starts writing the Nausicaa manga and then making this movie, he's got this character who's a princess. She's a pacifist. She's curious about the world around her. She's very ready to give things a chance but she's also a clear leader she she's decisive and she takes action and she she embodies a number of conventionally uh masculine traits and that's something that carries all through miyazaki's filmography are female characters who are in positions of leadership uh positions of agency uh and whether that's your protagonist or your antagonist yeah it's some it's a type of character that we uh talked about looking into more on the podcast here today mm-hmm. the shoju type character is something that miyazaki seemed to be very intrigued by th- at different points of his filming career like not to say mm-hmm. that this is a character that carried over through all of his work in fact we're going to talk yeah. about how it kind of altered after this film a little bit but mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know the shoju is a traditional japanese character archetype uh, kind of located uh, between childhood and adulthood outside of the heterosexual economy and is a character who is perceived as possessing freedom from social constructions of adult males and females uh someone with the freedom to dream to be unproductive useless silly but also to indulge in fantasies power adventure and ultimately to retain the irresponsible nature of a child uh now this is something that there are many different takes on why miyazaki was focused on these types of characters we will include a couple articles in the show notes right here about mm-hmm. this shoju type character and kind of the archetype in general. But also, if we can find it, we should try and locate that article about why Miyazaki kind of felt a personal connection to these types of characters as well. Absolutely. Yeah, there is. Um, we'll, we'll look for that. There is some stuff about especially about how he developed his main character, um, Chihiro, for Spirited Away. That's right in kind of a response to the expectations of young girls at that age and what they would be interested in as opposed to their potential. But in general, you can see that there's this exploration of the potential of people that are just leaving childhood and just entering adulthood and whether or not they can carry their curiosity, their compassion, all these things that children have innately that you often lose as an adult through trauma or through exhaustion or through a number of different factors. And you have this very idealized take on if you can carry these qualities through and apply them to your work as an adult and apply them to positions of authority, that there's a lot to be gained, right? You can be you can become a very special person. You can have a very great effect on the world around you. 
Yeah, and just to see someone kind of take this step forward with a really strong lead character is really refreshing. And I think as a child to see this type of character thrive in a movie like this uh, would be very empowering, especially I'm assuming as a young mm-hmm. female viewer. Again, yeah, this is that's an assumption that we have to make. <laughs> but I, again, as as we've said, like you know, when I was watching that first trailer, or when I actually was able to get my hands on a first Ghibli movie and watch it. It's, it's an entirely refreshing experience. These movies have an incredibly different pacing. They represent different themes and they have different types of characters than you would see in the vast majority of Western animated cinema. I feel like Studio Ghibli and perhaps maybe Japanese cinema and manga as a whole kind of trusts children to understand more complex ideas mm-hmm. and characters. And even like sometimes if it's more challenging in terms of being like scarier or almost too real at times. I think these are mm-hmm. important lessons that these studios are just entrusting younger audiences to be able to handle, which is something we don't really get in American Hollywood cinema. Yeah, and that especially becomes more true over the course of Miyazaki's filmography, where you have stories that have less clean endings, less clear conclusions, things like that. And apparently, uh, I'll try to look for the source on this. This is something I heard in a different podcast. Apparently, looking back on Nausicaa, he didn't love how he ended it. Yeah. He thought it was too clean. It has a little bit too much religious fervor around Nausicaa, the character. And I think that that is something that he starts to strip off of his female characters later on, is that he 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 steers away from princesses, from people with destinies, people who are chosen ones, which... I find it to be incredibly um, refreshing because you get a lot of chosenism in our media, especially from the 90s through to like, I don't know, 2010 or the, the 2010s, 2015, 2016, something like that. Yeah, like the prophesized leader who will come and change mm-hmm. everything because it's been told. Yeah, like, well, yeah, you have Harry Potter just sort of dominating yeah. the world for a number of years, which is all based around someone who has to live up to their prophecy and and nothing against Harry Potter. I, I definitely, I loved it as a kid and things like that, mm-hmm. but you go from Harry Potter to star Wars and, and a number of our main media um, properties that are designed for children are all just sort of saying, we want you to think of yourself as this chosen one as the special one. And I find it very refreshing in Miyazaki's later movies where all his main characters are incredibly uh, normal and unexceptional, and they rise to the occasion by benefit of qualities and skills and tenacity that anyone could possess, including your average viewer. I think it's a lot more egalitarian. Yeah, and I think that's something that... It's a lesson that a lot of Hollywood movies could take from something. Even Mm -hmm. uh, a movie like Nausicaa, which kind of splits that down the middle a little bit more, where there Mm -hmm. is this prophecy of someone who is great who will come along and change everything for the better but Mm -hmm. her character doesn't operate entirely on that stigma because you don't even know that it's her until the end of the movie yeah uh yeah she's not she's not trading on it right it's not a matter of her going around saying but i'm the chosen one you need to listen to me yeah she's very proactive in almost everything she does and the thing Mm -hmm. is that i noticed that's different between her character and most uh lead characters in children's movies is that adult characters listen to her like she doesn't take no for an mm-hmm. answer ever uh she is constantly the one pushing the agenda and moving forward in the sc- in the story she's never one to hesitate never one to take a no for an answer yeah well yeah she doesn't relent right there are only a couple occasions where she is overpowered mm-hmm. in in the course of trying to do what she believes is right 
but she she doesn't ever really give up and she doesn't compromise her morals um, because again this is something that will be i think developed and become even more effective in later ones like princess mononoke would be a really interesting study for side by side because they are largely these environmental themes what is humanity's place in a world that they have to feed upon in order to survive yeah. and how can you achieve harmony and i think he added a lot of nuance and complexity to that even jumping from nausicaa to princess mononoke but i think nausicaa makes a great argument for you have these warring nations they are trying to survive um and then you have this natural world which continually just reacts to being harmed right there is no first stone thrown or if there is it was definitely humanity who threw it mm-hmm. um you know when the omu become this massive sea of destruction it's because someone took one of their babies and is using it as bait right yeah which is pretty on the nose metaphor for how humans have impacted nature and the environment yeah so that that's a lot to go into the um the different sort of tropes at play just a couple others to throw out miyazaki's father uh worked with aircraft and you can see that throughout his movies any chance he has to devi- to design some sort of an aircraft he does yeah and you can tell he takes a lot of joy in it there's a immensely cool glider in this movie there's some really cool gunships but then you know you've got porco rosso the wind rises castle in the sky he just churns them out and they're all so interesting in in their function and how they look yeah, and in this movie, there's even that interesting relationship between Nausicaa and her father for the first chunk of the movie where it's understood that he can no longer fly, so she is now mm-hmm. like the ultimate flyer, or she's the ultimate pilot on the glider. Yeah, yeah, and no, and like it's a it's a big, it plays a huge role in her agency in yes, this film does. is her ability to get to one space to another, and it's just, it's so well put together where you see there's like six different ways that she can ride this thing. There's mm-hmm. a way that she can ride it when she has to carry cargo or carry Aspel or hang from underneath and jump off. Yeah. And it, it, it's just, it's so intricately designed, but it's also immediately understandable. Um, it, it really threads this needle. Yeah. I think this movie must have had just such a, a tremendous influence on anything fantasy or science fiction related. Like after mm-hmm. this, I'd say like even games like the last of us, took stuff from this mm-hmm. like the fungi and the poisonous growth yeah, yeah. there's so many influences this, and trails that this, this is one of those created. yeah this is one of those really powerful instances of iconic design and storytelling where if you haven't seen it before you're in for a treat because you'll go back and you'll watch it and you'll remember things that came before it that clearly influenced it like dune and then you'll also pick up on all these things that came after it. They're definitely influenced it. Like even like the guy who made the Final Fantasy games, you know, they have those chocobos that you ride around. They're like um like ostriches, right? right? Yeah, like so that, horseback. That's in this that's, too. He he has said it's directly from yeah. this. He loved this movie, right? So there's just it's one thing after another that you can you can see this movie being fed into and feeding into other other sort of parts in our in our echelon of uh of sci fi. Before we move on to our scene summary and discussion there, I do just want to mention that this movie was made in just nine months and it was That's made for a million dollars, which is ludicrous. And I did, I looked up a couple just Western frames of reference for you. Um, in 81, just a few years before this, Disney made The Fox and the Hound for $12 million. Wow. A couple a couple years after this, they made The Great Mouse Detective for $14 million, which is at the same time as Ghibli's next movie, or Ghibli's first movie, Miyazaki's next movie, Castle in the Sky, which was only $3.3 million, which is around what 
Cagliostro was made for yeah. as well. So the the economy at play on the screen is is ludicrous. It's not because I think it it is worth noting that Eastern animation they'll often repeat frames in a given sequence if it's low priority, right? Yeah, so it highly is economic. Ed, yeah, everything's coming through at twenty four frames a second, but you get repeat frames anywhere from two to three x. So it's actually somewhere around eight to 12 frames a second, except in action sequences where they'll bump it up to 24 frames a second. Um, but still these budget differences are not a factor of two or three X. They're a factor of 12 or 14 or 40 X. If you compare it to the little mermaid in 89, which was $40 million. Um, yeah. So the, the people making Nausicaa, obviously Miyazaki did not have a ton of clout after Cagliostro. He couldn't get a lot of money for the budget and they were paid by the frame. Yeah. So that's, that's why right. in your, in your slower sequences, when they're just speaking or when it way zoomed out, it's going to be maybe eight frames a second. They're not going to spend too much money on those sequences, but action sequences, when you got the God warrior later on fight scenes, like we're about to talk about, that's where your money is. Yeah, so I guess that might be a good transition point into our scene for the day. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about the Tolmikian invasion sequence, which takes place about 31.15 into the movie and lasts until about 35.10, so it's a four-minute scene. In this beautifully imagined scene, the Tolmikian army airships abruptly disrupt the peaceful Valley of the Wind. Nausicaa tries to help civilians to safety, but quickly realizes that the airships are going after her father, who lies bedridden in a tower. She arrives, but her father has already been slain by the Tomikian royal guard, and in a burst of rage, Nausicaa violently assaults several Tomikians, including Kuratawa, one of the leaders, until she is halted by her ally, Lord Yupa. And uh, yeah, that's, I guess, what we're going to break down today. Yeah, and th so in this scene, the primary sort of voice actors at play are uh, Sumi Shimamoto, which is uh, Nausicaa, Goro Naya, which is Lord Yupa, and Aimasa Kayumi, who plays Kurotoa. Yeah, good job on those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try. Um, yeah, so we picked this scene because we think it both represents a great counterpoint to the rest of Nausicaa's character, and I think gives a lot of context and texture to her character arc and how difficult it is to uphold her ideals. And also there's some great animation uh, being exhibited here. Yeah, this is one of the uh, few scenes in the movie where her character morals are at a point of tension with like mm -hmm. what she actually is striving towards. She is, a, for the most part, a peaceful leader who strives mm -hmm. to find the nonviolent way out of uh, seemingly violent altercations and consistently throughout the movie after this point she's able to kind of escape violence whenever possible but here she here is where her character actually breaks and you see her kind of fall into this state of rage uh, mm -hmm. after her father's death and it's all it's not only counterpointed by her actual actions as a character but also visually the scene is quite distinct yeah, it's a really powerful scene because, as you were saying, you know, in early instances when she's faced with a situation where someone might become violent, um, consistently shows these ways that she can diffuse situations without having to do so, right? So I love the idea that this character in an earlier scene, what, the only time she fires a gun is either to use a flare or as a distraction. 
right? And she even, she pulls apart one of her bullets so that she can harvest a precious material when she's out in the Sea of Decay. Mm-hmm. Um, and when dealing with massive building-sized ohms that are charging, she uses this wind charm, right? This little spinning thing that makes a whistling noise that sort of hypnotizes them. She uses flares to distract them. All of these non-violent ways to deal with something that any of these other warring nations would just open fire with tanks and things like that. And the, the movie, does, so, it should be noted, the movie does a really good job at showing that all these uses of violence are so ineffective ultimately against the ohm mm-hmm. and against this growing toxin that continues to threaten everybody. Yeah, even at the most apocalyptic point in this movie where you have the greatest display of power at play, it's even it is dwarfed by the presence of these ohm. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, back in the scene, yeah, you have this, I think, a very fitting instance because it occurs many other times in the movie where it's the harm to a loved one or your kin or your family or your kind that causes you to lash out. And that's mirrored in the Pajit princess who's taken by the Tomekians. That's right. And and also um, the the Ohm baby that's taken by the Pajit nation to provoke an attack by the Omu. That's right. I didn't um, even think so about that. that it is an it's, it's mirrored all the way through. It's always people lash out as a result of them their 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 loved ones being harmed and that's what happens here you see she she basically she rushes up to her father's chambers her father is bedridden it's been established already and it's already too late it's not a matter of him being lost in the struggle he's already been killed by these Temekian invaders yeah that scene kind of struck me that like when i was watching this movie i watching this scene and i was like in that moment when the father dies i was like this is the scene we have to talk about for the podcast because Mm -hmm. the way that that's cut is so unique to this style of cinema it's not something that i'm used to seeing in once again to make the comparable like disney films uh yeah they wouldn't do it like this and like if you were gonna lose a key character like mufasa you would see the process yeah you don't get to see it that's exactly the point they cut away and the, the and the bad guy would be arch. The bad guy would be evil. That's the other thing is that Kushana and Kurotoa, who are among the more strictly evil Ghibli antagonists, they still, there's discussions after this, right? There are, um, there are explorations of their motives and whether or not what they're doing is right for humanity and things like that. It's, it's so much more nuanced than you would expect from a, a, what is ostensibly a children's movie, but I think that's reductive in general. Yeah, I, I think that the harsh part about this scene that surprises me is that it's just like you see the father grab his clearly like an important sword, like it's almost like an emblem of tradition and history for them, and he grabs mm-hmm. it and he's holding it in his bed. And all these guards just like rush into his room and you just see them kind of open the door with their guns all pointed at him. And he clearly doesn't have any chance of fighting back. It's not no. even his two lead antagonist characters, Kushana and Kurotoa, who are really involved in the scene. When Nausicaa arrives, it's just really the guards around her father. So mm-hmm. it's, it's also detached in that way. But yeah, as soon as the guards open the door, the shot just cuts to outside the tower and you just know that the father has died. Yeah. Because I, I think you hear the the barrage of like the the charges going yeah. off, right? As they all they all sort of open fire, and then yeah, Nausicaa makes her way up. She goes up through like a like an air like a an aircraft bay, right? There's some nice sort of texture, right? All these new glider um, forms and things like that, and makes her way up and sees that he's been murdered in his bed, 
and she flies into a rage. I think there's these, there are these animation uh, techniques at play, right? Where you see the rage come over her and her hair sort of stands up mm-hmm. a bit. It's almost, almost the argument be ma- being made that you, you're experiencing an animal reaction, right? This is, this is something deep, deep seated. It's the same reason that the Omu, you know, their, their eyes turn red, right? And they see red and they, they enter into a rage and, she goes off and she starts fighting these guys with a, like a, like a, is her father's cane? It's not a blade no, that she's using at first. It's like a blunt, a, a blunt object that mm-hmm. it seems to be like in, pretty indestructible. So I don't think it's his cane unless he had a really awesome not, cane. Yeah, not until, not until the, uh, like the armored knights come in. But those first couple guards, she just dominates them with this, this blunt object. Yeah. Um, and you have, you have uh, this phenomenal shot with Kuratoa holds up his sword to defend himself and uh the the cane just shatters right through it and it's all at his perspective and he like it's flying backwards in slow-mo yeah yeah and yeah there there a number of like little instances of of animation that i wanted to point out that was one of them um there's this great thing where you're sort of you're looking at from the guards perspective as they're all swinging at nausicaa and you're getting her moving the cane into different defensive positions and you're getting these little pinpoints of where she's defending. And then the, the piece de resistance to me, like the thing that it gets me every time is you have these armored knights come in the doorway after she completely dummies all these sort of unarmored guards and she smashes her cane over their armor, does this flip back and then she doesn't take her eyes off of them and she feels around on the floor around yeah, for her for a weapon. And that is, I, <laughs> I cannot believe that, that you would take the time to animate something like that. That is something I, it, it, it has a quality that feels so unique. Um, well, it feels you real. Take the it time feels to, like yeah. not something you have. It feels mm-hmm. like not, not informed by movie traditions. It feels like something that it's just obvious. Like this is what she would do. She's a, She's a gifted fighter. She's not going to mm-hmm. take her eyes off her opponent. Yet it's like, yeah. like you said, it's not something you see. It's so crazy that that's a revelation. <laughs> yeah, it it is. It shouldn't be as amazing to me as it is. But I think it's it's another one of these Miyazaki things where he's willing to take a little time on something. Um, he's willing to take a pause, things like that. There's another scene. The other scene I would have suggested for our analysis comes later where Nausicaa's down in her lab and Yupa talks to her and it's this, it's this breath out, right? It's this pause and it's pacing. And I even think that that happens on a little tiny scale in this fight where just in that sequence where she, she flips back and doesn't just immediately find a sword, right? Mm -hmm. There's a second where she has to look for a sword. It adds just a little hint of realism and it's a nice little um, pause in the pacing of the fight. Um, I, I think, I think it's just, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, I think it I also it. shows that she's still engaged. Like it's not a de-escalation in her mind, but like yet mm-hmm. you as a viewer get a chance to kind of uh, take a, take that exhale. And yet mm-hmm. she still is like fully in the zone, ready to take out the next enemy. Yeah. It's of course here where she is abruptly stopped by Lord Yupa, who sticks his mm-hmm. arm in the way of the sword. Which yeah. Which is crazy. And I, I, it's almost, it, it functions so well as him saying, him acting a reminder, right? Not having to say to Nausicaa, but acting out his belief that if we're going to stop this, it will take a sacrifice, right? We've already, we've lost our king. 
if you you will definitely be able to wipe out these guards but they will stop you eventually and it will cost more lives so let me let me end this conflict right now i'll take a hit and he does in his left hand and he's got a dagger on like in between the the folds of the armor in the in the uh, the the tomekians and uh and he he completely pauses the fight um while allowing harm to come to himself so that he can talk some sense into these people and it's a wonderful on-brand laser focused on the theme way to resolve this sequence yeah you get like once again coming back to this idea you know it's slightly above the range of what children can expect to see in cinema Mm -hmm. in north america you have the blood running down his Mm -hmm. arm and that's what kind of triggers nausicaa to stop and like this violent rage finally ceases when she sees mm-hmm. Lord Yupa, her ally's blood dripping down towards her because she's just stabbed him in the arm. Yeah, it goes all the way down the length of the, her sword yeah. to the hilt and then starts dripping off there. And that sort of shocks her out of it, reminds her there, there's a cost at play here. These are all people. And Yupa's, Yupa's her friend and her mentor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it, it's so well written, so well executed. I think it's none of it... Um, like uh, none of it takes a detour away from the themes of the movie in order to have a fight or to to meet some other end. I think it's all in line. And then again, seeing Nausicaa, you know, become violent, um, surrender to her baser instincts, I think just makes it all the more impressive how she is the rest of the time when she's holding to her ideals and she's refusing to lash out. Which is ultimately like, I think why the scene holds as such an important one it's because this is where you see like that she isn't this perfect Mary Sue type character that is just flawless in all ways and who's mm-hmm. able to overcome everything so easily. This is someone who is clearly has this state of rage built in her and after this point in the movie is clearly in control of that. And that's something we have yeah. to un- we un- only understand as viewers because of this scene where we see her break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without this scene, uh, yeah, it, she would be so flawless throughout the movie. Right. Especially if they if they went so far as to have, you know, your father was just murdered in cold blood. And she's like, well, we need to speak to the Tomekians and work with them. Right. Like this is a very important uh, point uh, as a foil to the rest of her 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 performance and her her actions. Yeah, I don't want to totally skirt this idea that she is like a pretty perfect, flawless character. But this scene Mm -hmm. does enable like a more nuanced reading of that because. Yeah, we are seeing like honestly it's kind of a badass side of her but i know we're supposed to see this as like a detriment to her character and her ability to resolve things peacefully yeah i would assume in the warriors of the wind this scene is probably telegraphed in a different way and (laughs) makes her seem extremely cool and it's one of her one of her high points and really in this movie it acts as a low point for her it's something that she's ashamed of and you can tell it's you know it's miyazaki saying you know, humanity has this quickness to violence, especially when they're acting out of fear for something they love. Um, and you should be afraid of that potential for violence because it's good. It's done a lot of harm so far, but you can rise above it. It will take sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's very aspirational. And again, it's a an irregular lesson to maybe try to teach children, but I think one that they're definitely capable of uh, internalizing. I think so. I, I think once again, yeah. that's just about giving every viewer the credit that they deserve to be able to understand a movie like this. Mm -hmm. So the animation style in this scene, something that really stood out to me, first and foremost, the way that the Tolmikian 
warships kind of fly in. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that this is a lot of animation technica- or a lot of technical animation talk here, but it looks mm-hmm. as though like all these backgrounds are pretty much frozen. You're yep. reusing all the backgrounds, but yet it looks so good. Like the ships just are separated perfectly from the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel mammoth. They feel colossal versus the people. And I don't really know why Ghibli Animation is able to do this and trump almost other, every other form of animation that I've seen in terms of creating these perspectives and also mm-hmm. like creating such a beautiful sequence of like both like combining color and action um, mm-hmm. all while simplifying things like the animation. Yeah, I do think my guess, and this is this is unresearched, but it feels like the kind of thing where under under constraints of budget and time and technology, that's where you find your creative solutions, right? It's the reason, you know, you don't see the shark as much in Jaws, and that's why Jaws ends up working really well, because you don't see the shark at time. Right. It ends up being scarier. It's that same idea at play here where they don't have the money to pay people to do 24 frames a second for an hour and a half long movie. So, you know, they have to get creative with how they do that. And and so you have like the ships and the Omu are that 2d stop motion style where it's almost like a cutout that they animate moving along just, just two dimensions, right? It has no, no real depth. It has drawn depth. Yet it feels um, just so much more, yet it feels just so much more imaginative. Yep, and I feel like they have a real presence, too. You can spot that style of animation, and it does feel dated, I suppose, if you compare it to, you know, obviously the last 25 years, but I think it's super effective, and I think it makes both the warships and the Omu feel grander and more iconic, right? Yeah. Because they're not even they're not even animated in the same way as Nausicaa's glider, if you're comparing the, the airships, or the Omu to... Um, the God Warrior, or to everyday people, right? They, they're they're of a different nature, you know. Yeah, I guess like her glider does work in a very similar way. Like it's something that does not have any alteration to its shape at any point. It is the same mm-hmm. shape all at all times, almost. But it's it's animated conventionally. It's yes. not done in that cutout style. But it, like yeah. once again, it's going back to this very efficient way of doing things, where you're just like you're planning these. Uh, creatures or objects moving according to like how hard it is to animate them and that just seems very Mm -hmm. intelligent something that you should do in an animated film yeah um like the ships are literally just cut out and they're just seen like moving through the air and yet they Mm -hmm. work really well i think yeah it adds this great sense of scale especially when you're used to the aircraft being nausicaa's glider or like the corvette that the valley of the wind uses Right, and then when you see the Tomekian ship come in, and it has a thousand lit windows, yeah. and it's covered with bugs on the front, it just it, it the design immediately sets it apart. Right, you know you're not dealing with the same thing, and it allows for these great shots of scale. There's one later where Nausicaa is on her glider and she's flying away from a Tomekian ship um, along the edge of a cloud. And the Tomekian ship like breaches out and it looks like it's a blue whale coming after like one krill. Yeah. You know, they're these really engaging sequences. And uh, I think they do, obviously they do so much with so little, a million dollars to do this. Mm. Right. And just what, what was a small crack team of animators working nonstop over the course of nine months to see if they could make some money off of a manga, which, uh, you know, ended up birthing 
the most successful animation studio in Japan and in the East, and uh, one that Disney fought a long time to get the distribution rights for. Yeah, and I guess that kind of puts a great shell around this whole thing. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to point out one more thing about the action sequence yeah, yeah. where Nausicaa's mm-hmm. fighting. That's clearly like an example of them in the movie where they're using 24 frames to their advantage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where you ramp up. That's where you want your mind to be. Like the best example of this recently that I'd, I'd compare it to. Um, I'm sure some of you out there have watched uh, Invincible on Amazon Prime, uh, an animated show, which has some of the like most low bargain barrel animation during the conversations, the non-important scenes, like they're barely putting any money into it. And then per episode, there would be like two minutes where it goes up to 24 frames a second and it becomes an entirely different show. It's that same thing, right? You have to put your money where you need it. And Eastern animation's always been a lot better at doing that. Anime is a lot more forgiving for that too, even in terms of the scripts and things like that. Um, Western animation, especially Disney stuff where you're also paying for songs, um, Mm -hmm. and you have a lot, a lot of other expenses, obviously they're going to be more expensive. So again, just to sort of conclude this scene is to say that it's an important scene for Nausicaa. It adds a lot of depth to her character and otherwise it exemplifies a lot of the tropes and the themes at play that make this movie um, a great watch and also a great counterpoint to uh, conventional Western animation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I don't have much to add. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion. I'm glad got you to see this movie. Yeah, um, I had not seen this yeah. prior to this podcast mm-hmm. agreement. So, And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I hope lots of people out there are watching this for the first time. Again, I think it's one that you can overlook because it's not technically Ghibli. It is wrapped up in a lot of box sets and things like that, and it's included in the lists, but it doesn't look the same, I'd say. No. Um, it definitely is set apart a bit, but it's uh, definitely worth watching. But uh, with that, we can move into our shout-outs for Nausicaa. Um, And I don't mind uh, going first. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, a climactic scene later on in the movie. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about when I say it's the God Warrior scene. It's a very visually stunning scene. Uh, It's it's a very, very fraught thematically, and it's it's a difficult watch as you're seeing basically the Tomekians deploy their greatest weapon, and the weapon that they know led to the destruction of the world known as the Seven Days of Fire, um, against a sea of raging Omu. The cool part about this is that one guy was tasked with animating this sequence, and uh, and he did it on that, you know, paid-per-frame deal, and that was actually Hideaki Anno, who we talked about last week, or two weeks ago, in our Shin Godzilla episode, the director there. So uh, that's a nice little connection. Him and Miyazaki are apparently very good friends. They've helped each other over the years, and... Ono's co-director from Shin Godzilla later directed Giant God Warrior Appears in Tokyo, which is the first and only Ghibli live feature. Or sorry, it's a short film, but it's the only live one. And it is the prequel to this. It's a, it's a take on what led to the Seven Days of Fire. And it's a full-fledged version of this God Warrior showing up in modern-day Tokyo and wreaking destruction. Oh, wow. And is that yeah. available anywhere? Uh, I believe it's on um, Vimeo. So uh, if I can find it, we'll throw it in the show notes. It's a little short. Uh, I don't think there were English subs last time I watched it, but just for the design of the God God Warrior alone and Hideaki Anu and, uh, and his co-director Shinji 
Higuchi uh, from Shin Godzilla. It's all on display, and it's it's a neat little tie-in with uh, Ghibli and his legacy. Yeah, I love the connections to our previous single-serving episodes here. We got Allison mm-hmm. Lohman doing the voiceover from Drag Me to Hell, mm-hmm. and now Hideki yeah. Anno re- re- reappearing on the podcast. Who would have thought? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you got this week, Tay? Uh, my shout-out, I could have picked so many aspects of the design of this movie because mm-hmm. I'm such a fan of this more simplified, very colorful, palleted animation style. But my biggest takeaway was the design of the Omu uh, as something that is mm-hmm. truly hideous to me, yet something that clearly is integral to this story. And it just con- the significance of this creature just continues to magnify throughout the film. Like you start seeing like, oh, now it's a protector of the world like it was like designed to like arise as this protector of the jungle worlds in order to like mm-hmm. keep humans away from destroying it again uh, i love the idea of the eyes changing color mm-hmm. and kind of going back to that idea of the simplified animation just see having something so colossal and genetically superior to the point where it is like this perfect mechanism of destruction it is a mm-hmm. uh, was really cool to see visualized in such a grotesque way for a, a movie once again targeted for younger audiences something like this would not really fly in most movies unless it was like truly the antagonist or true or like the antagonist henchman kind of type thing and this is really refreshing as well i think they had this really iconic design i love the 14 eyes and how there isn't really a face that you can lock into there are no pupils right you never really know where they're looking so that anthropomorphism is lost Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like with Shin Godzilla we were talking about, I think that's an important thing for these creatures. If you're really going to respect them as other, as, you know, terrestrially alien, um, it's important for you to not be able to draw a smiley face on them. Yeah. And I think I think the look is really good. I think, personally, you're a little unfair calling them grotesque. <laughs> I, I like the way they look. Uh, but to each their own, I would, like, if I could, I wouldn't mind, like, a little, like, Shih Tzu-sized ohm to you know kind of scutter around the home like a little Roomba but that's just me okay well yeah to bring this conversation full circle (laughs) I would probably squish a small one of these guys if it was in my house without knowing any context you know obviously yeah yeah. well yeah you would squish one and then you know 6,000 would uh would show up on the horizon and start destroying Niagara yeah I'd be doomed and but actually you know that's to wrap up this idea of this being my shout out I think one Mm -hmm. of my favorite parts about the Omu is that they would trample cities, die, decay, and then become the jungle forest. Like they, they would turn yeah. into the fungal like toxin, mm-hmm. which was so cool. When you have that, there's a great shot midway through the movie. It's like clearly like a flashback or like an imagination, but uh, mm-hmm. it's just panning across, and you see like fully formed Omu, and then slowly they start decaying, mm-hmm. and then you see them like fully like turning into like toxic jungle. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really sort of like thematically pleasing cyclical nature to their design. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? And I'm, I I can't imagine to what detail it goes into in the manga because I know the manga went on for ten years. Wow, right? it went on for eight years after they made Nausicaa the movie, um, and apparently it's where it's where Miyazaki sort of did a lot more of his darker ideas because while while he was doing the manga, he made Totoro and Castle in the Sky and some of his more young child friendly <laughs> uh properties but i guess he 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 saved all the dark stuff for for the manga 
But yeah, that's, uh, that's our discussion for Nausicaa today. We're going to wrap it up with our recommendations as per usual. And uh, I'm going to have you go first, Hey, Yours ties in a little bit better than mine does. Sure. So my recommendation for the week is a movie called La Tortue Rouge or uh, The Red Turtle, which is a mm-hmm. film by director Michael Dudoc de Witt from 2016. Uh, it is mm-hmm. a joint venture between Studio Ghibli and the German studio Wild Bunch. Uh, the director is Dutch. The movie is in mm-hmm. French, so I don't know quite what all the connections are. There, there's something European going on that we're not a party to, but uh, it's it's good movie. Yeah, it, it <laughs> yeah. follows this more... Tra- it's definitely influenced by more traditional Ghibli design and animation, mm-hmm. uh, but I believe there's a, they used watercolor to... Yeah, it, it, it still has its own unique look. Yeah, it's... Very yeah. unique, very stunning, very beautiful. And one of my favorite aspects about it is there's almost no dialogue in the film. Yeah. Um, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. Uh, I highly mm-hmm. recommend watch this film because despite the fact there's no dialogue, it will speak for itself. It is a wonderful movie that is pretty yeah. short. I believe it's a tight 80-minute film. So check it out, especially if you're a fan of Ghibli. I feel like it's one mm-hmm. that was easily overlooked. And it's a, it's a newer addition to that. Uh, catalog as well from 2016 yeah yeah no it's a beautiful movie i believe i got to see this in theaters yeah, i did too um which was which was great um and uh yeah highly recommend it and uh that that runtime is hard to beat anything anything sub 90 always feels real good when they can pull That's it off right. so definitely check that out and uh, check the show notes to see where you can watch it um my recommendation this time is based off of I'd watched The Tomorrow War recently, that Chris Pratt Amazon Prime movie, um, which is, yeah, it was a bummer. It's like a knockoff, live, die, repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, which was unfortunate because that, that's a good one. Um, but in The Tomorrow War, a great actress, Betty Gilpin, gets relegated to being Chris Pratt's wife. And I understand the need to work in anything. I don't, I don't have anything against her for taking on that role. But it did remind me of how good an actor she can be and was in my recommendation this week, which is called The Hunt. It's a 2020 movie by Craig Zobel. Um, I'd highly, highly recommend it. It not is Not a remake, uh, by the way. No, it's not a remake. It has nothing to do with the Mads Mikkelsen movie. Um, it's entirely its own thing. And I don't even think it's worth describing really beyond the f- idea that it's um, like elite liberals hunting uh red state conservatives and i'll just leave it at that Uh, betty gilpin yeah betty gilpin gives a phenomenal performance kind of performance that makes me wonder why she isn't a huge deal right now um my secret guess is that she turned down a marvel role and that kind of put a kink in the pipeline uh in terms of her career but that's that's entirely a guess She's wonderful in this movie. The movie also has our boy Macon Blair in it. That's so right. You know it's good. Um, yeah, so check out the notes, see where you can watch it, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Anything with Macon Blair, man. Mm-hmm. But uh, with that, we got another episode in the bag. We hope you enjoyed our first one, talking about an animated feature. It will not be the last. And before we're done, this is long overdue. If you're using iTunes, uh, we'd love for you to give us a review. Uh, If you like the podcast, please just put a little note on there. Give us a certain number of stars out of five. Five would be really good, but, you know, follow your heart. We'd appreciate the support. Yeah, three to five would be fine. Three to five or or four to five or even just like five. Like if you're listening to this right now, you're a five-star listener. You're right here at the end with us. 
feels like you should throw us five stars right back. <laughs> I agree. Thanks for sticking with yeah. us till the end. But with that, uh, thanks very much for listening, everybody. And we will see you in two weeks. See you then.